Hello, and welcome to the 2010 Geriatric Lecture Series brought to you by the Iowa Geriatric Education Center. I'm Ryan Carnahan. I'm a psychiatric pharmacist and epidemiologist with the University of Iowa College of Public Health. And I'm going to be talking with you today about cognitive enhancers for dementia and drug-induced cognitive impairment. So we're going to be discussing drugs that can help people with their cognition, as well as those people, those drugs that can hurt cognition. Uh, first, I want to make a couple of acknowledgments and mention some past conflicts. Uh, first, I'm supported by an agency for healthcare research and quality, uh, Centers for Education and Research on Therapeutics Agreement, uh, or the Iowa Older Adults CERT. Um, and I also want to acknowledge the Iowa Geriatric Education Center uh, for putting on this lecture series. Uh, in the past, I've received research support from a number of pharmaceutical companies, but none of this is current. Uh, I want to thank Keith Swanson uh, at the University of Oklahoma College of Pharmacy for contributing some slides to this presentation uh, we presented on this topic together in the past. I also want to mention that some of the uses that I'll be talking about for some of the medications are off-label. Um, most of the cognitive enhancing drugs are just approved for Alzheimer's disease with a few exceptions. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some other types of dementia for which they might be helpful. Um, so the objectives uh, for this talk are to describe the effectiveness of cognitive enhancing medications in dementia and then compare and contrast um, these medications, then describe cognitive problems that can result from medications as well as those medications that can induce or worsen cognitive impairment. So first, I'll just briefly talk about dementia. Um, we've already had a lecture on this, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, but most of you probably know that Alzheimer's disease is the most common type of dementia. Uh, it's a very, it's a leading cause of death um, in the elderly um, in the United States and really around the world as far as developing countries go. Um, and as many as four and a half million Americans suffer from Alzheimer's disease, I think this is an old estimate, really, because uh, I think I've seen estimates of five million plus. And as we know, as the population can, continues to age with the baby, baby boomers, uh, the prevalence is going to go up a great deal. Um, the prevalence increases with age um, such that in the group that's 85 years and older, nearly half of people have some degree of dementia. The clinical features of dementia, um, I think most of you are probably familiar with these, uh, include de deterioration in function, inability to uh, manage one's activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living, uh, the latter really suffering first. Um, so first types of problems people will have are with managing finances, cooking, cleaning, etc. And then eventually they'll start to have problems with um, caring for themselves on a more basic level. And then a person's global function just generally declines. They'll have difficulties with executive functioning leading to these ADL difficulties as well as with memory. Um, so cognitive impairment is also a, a core symptom uh, as you probably know. Um, and then there are other symptoms, behavioral changes, language problems, and other things, uh, psychiatric types of symptoms, depression, anxiety, uh, agitation, hallucinations that can happen at different points along the course of the disease. Um, and in different types of dementia, you're going to see different presentations um, with 
For example, in Lewy body dementia, you may see hallucinations and Parkinsonian symptoms much earlier in the course of, of the disease. Or in frontotemporal dementia, you would be more likely to see disinhibition and behavioral problems that um, are a major uh, symptom of the disease. So I just want to mention briefly dementia severity and levels of severity because the drugs that we use to try to enhance cognition in dementia uh, work differently at different stages. Um, the cholinesterase inhibitors, which are um, have been around the longest, and we have a number of them, tend to work best in mild to moderate dementia, although there is some evidence showing that they may work in severe dementia. Um, for some people at least. Uh, in the case of denepazil, it's been studied in severe dementia and, and uh, actually has an indication. Um, whereas memantine really hasn't shown a lot of success in the earlier stages of dementia. Memantine is a, a, an MDA glutamate antagonist uh, meant to sort of prevent um, cognitive, uh, pre prevent brain damage really that's happening when um, Throughout the course of the disease, the brain continues to atrophy, and, and uh, memantine is thought to reduce some of the neurotoxicity associated with excessive glutamate, but we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later. So in the mild dementia, you see um, still general ability to, to function, but you see signs of, of memory loss, difficulty uh, with language to a certain degree, uh, clock drawing is going to suffer, um, there may be mood swings and anxiety, some difficulties with executive function and personality changes. When someone moves on to moderate dementia, which really, I th I don't, there's not a clear threshold at which somebody becomes moderately demented instead of mildly demented, but you might think of a mini mental status exam score around 20, maybe a little bit lower where that um, transition starts to happen. Uh, there, again, not a clear consensus, but that's uh, somewhat equivalent to the thresholds for inclusion in the clinical trials uh, which have shown benefit of certain drugs in moderate to severe dementia, for example, memantine. So in moderate dementia, the ability to learn new information is, is really gone. Um, people will have difficulty uh, naming things with purposeful movement, uh, interpreting their environment. Um, they may start to show some behavioral symptoms such as wandering, agitation, aggression, psychosis, uh, and things like confusion and insomnia as well. Um, or behavioral symptoms may be the result of something like psychosis in one of these patients. Um, and they're definitely going to need assistance with their activities of daily living. This is a point at which they probably are going to start to need 24-hour monitoring. And then in severe dementia, a person's really not capable of caring for themselves. Most likely they're going to be in a long-term care facility. They may be wheelchair or, or bed-bound. Uh, there will be Experimental symptoms, uh, problems with gait, uh, problems controlling um, the bladder and bowels, and other symptoms. Um, so the cognitive enhancing agents we have, I wish the story that I was here to bring you was that we'd come up, with, you know, people had come up with some sort of uh, miracle cure and that uh, we were able to uh, defeat dementia, but obviously that's not the case. Um, the cognitive enhancing drugs we do have have a very limited efficacy, um, so they don't have a very strong effect. And I think it's important for people to recognize that when they're thinking about the expectations that they have of these medications, 
that they don't do a whole lot. It's maybe difficult to even see the clinical benefit of the drug. Our hope is that we can actually prevent some of the loss of function from happening as quickly as it would otherwise. And that's about the best that we can do for the most part uh, with these drugs that we have available to us right now. Um, so the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors are um, generally for mild to moderate dementia. Um, Denepazil is also indicated for severe uh, Alzheimer's disease, and they can be useful in other um, types of dementia as well, which I'll talk about a little bit more. Memantine, the NMDA inhibitor, um, as I said, is really better for moderate to severe disease as far as the ev evidence that's available to us at this time. Uh, it's, they're not, they've not shown much benefit with the drug in milder forms uh, or milder states of dementia. And then there are a number of other agents that have been studied and in some cases may have shown some benefit in some places, not so much benefit in other places, but for the most part none of them uh, has really proven yet um, to be of benefit or they've been shown ultimately uh, not to help. And I'll talk about those a little bit more uh, as well. So what do cholinesterase inhibitors do? Uh, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that's important to uh, keeping attention and awareness and keeping a normal level of consciousness for interpreting the environment. Some of these things that can actually start to suffer in dementia. We know the cholinergic system is damaged in dementia. And so the hope is that by reducing the breakdown of acetylcholine by the enzyme um, acetylcholinesterase, that we can increase this, uh, the amount of acetylcholine available to the remaining neurons and improve their function um, compared to having less acetylcholine uh, in the system. And again, this is not a dramatic improvement that is seen, but we do see um, some small benefits from these drugs. So as I said, they're indicated for mild to moderate Alzheimer's, but there is evidence showing that they're helpful in really about any kind of dementia. Um, very limited evidence in certain cases, particularly in the case of frontotemporal dementia, but there are some things that indicate that they might be worth a try, uh, that, suggesting that certain patients might respond and improve um, on these drugs. But the, the better evidence is in Alzheimer's disease, I would say also vascular dementia. Um, they're really the cornerstone of treatment for Lewy body dementia, um, and uh, despite not a ton of trials or anything, it's probably the best thing that we have um, to give those individuals. So we have denepazil, uh, also known as Aricept, um, galantamine, also known as Razadine, uh, rivastigmine, also known as Exelon, um, which also has an indication for Parkinson's disease dementia, and then Tacrin or Cognex, which was the first available cholinesterase inhibitor. Excuse me. So as far as models of treatment response in dementia, there are a number of things that we would like to see happen with drugs that we give for, this, um, for these diseases. Uh, so if we take uh, so what you might expect to be the average um, reduction in many mental status exam scores over time, something like a 10% decline every six months. And if we give a drug that slows disease progression. Ideally, what we'd like to see was this line flattening out to much more of a stability 
in function. It'd be really nice to have something that would reverse disease progression and bring somebody back up to a fully functional level at this maximum mini-mouse test exam score of 30. I have some doubts whether that's going to be in our future given that there is actual brain damage occurring in dementia. Um, actually getting back what somebody has lost may be a little bit more difficult than trying to keep them from losing more of um, what they have. But these are some models to be thinking about. So when we give a, a cholinesterase inhibitor, um, here is the, again the normal type of progression that you might expect to see, although this varies widely among, uh, among people that are rapidly or more slowly progressing cases. Um, if we give treatment with a cholinesterase inhibitor, we might expect something like a six-month delay in decline, at which time the level of functioning or the cog cognitive functioning starts to decline at about the same rate as in somebody without treatment. But you've delayed this worsening of, the, of a person's condition for some period of time. When treatment is stopped, there have been some studies that have shown that people will decline to more the level of functioning of somebody who had not received treatment in the first place. So you stop treatment and the benefit, whatever benefit was seen, may go away. And there are also questions remaining as to whether if you reinitiate treatment, whether you can get back to the point that the person was at before um, they stopped treatment. And so this makes people afraid to stop treatment. And I don't really think that we have great evidence uh, to show either way. There, again, are some indications that it may be difficult to get back to that uh, level of functioning before the uh, fairly rapid decline uh, that happens with, with stopping treatment. But I also have a feeling that this isn't the case where all of a sudden you stop treatment and the, what's going on in a person's um, brain from a neurological standpoint and of the actual brain damage is going to change a lot compared to when they were taking the medication a, a few weeks prior. Um, so while it may take some time to get back up to that level of functioning that they were getting with treatment, I, I still think that you can probably regain some benefit if you decide to try stopping and then if, if at that point you think that a person's level of function drops pretty abruptly without the medication and want to try it again, I don't think that's such a terrible thing. Um, but that's really just my personal opinion. And I don't think that there are great answers as to when to stop treatment or what exactly is going to happen uh, if you do. So side effects are, are something that can limit the use of these drugs. These side effects are dose dependent. So as you increase the dose, uh, they tend to get worse although somebody may be able to tolerate them better over time after they've gotten used to having the medication on board. Some of the most common side effects have to do with stimulation of the GI tract. So those are, you might be familiar with anticholinergics causing constipation um, for a lot of older people. Uh, well, if you do the opposite and you stimulate cholinergic neurotransmission, then you're going to get GI stimulation. Um, so this will, may lead to diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, and weight loss, which are somewhat common uh, side effects seen in the, the clinical trials and uh, with these drugs. 
There also can be bladder stimulation, so you can unmask urinary incontinence or worsen urinary incontinence because the detrusor muscle in the bladder relies on cholinergic input. So when you add acetylcholine, this clamps down the bladder more. Um, you may know that anticholinergics can cause urinary retention. This is, again, doing the um, kind of the opposite. Uh, and so a lot of times you'll actually give a cholinesterase inhibitor, a person will become incontinent, and then a, they may get a treatment for urinary incontinence, an antispasmodic. These drugs are anticholinergic drugs, and there are potential cognitive side effects of these drugs that I'll be talking about later. So it's something to be careful about. I think it's better to reduce the dose of the cholinesterase inhibitor than to add a drug to treat this side effect that may be due to the cholinesterase inhibitor. Although many people eventually, in their course of dementia, will lose their bladder and possibly bowel function, and this is really, um, unfortunately, just part of uh, the disease. These drugs can also cause insomnia and abnormal dreams, um, muscle weakness and fatigue, as well as muscle cramps for some people. Um, I believe leg cramps are, were a fairly common um, adverse effect in the, the denepazil trials, for example. And then there are some other rare side effects to be aware of. Um, so because of cholinergic input on the SA node of the heart uh, will slow the heart, uh, when you give these drugs, they can you can get bradycardia, uh, even heart block potentially in some cases. Um, seizures have occurred that seem to be related to the use of cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, and in some cases, when an anticholinergic was abruptly withdrawn, and somebody who was on a cholinesterase inhibitor, seizures have happened. Um, so this is something to look out for. And if somebody's been on a chronic anticholinergic drug then it might be good to slowly taper them off instead of abruptly uh, taking it away. And then uh, you may be aware of inhaled anticholinergics for COPD uh, or asthma. And so since this is doing the opposite, it's possible that these drugs can exacerbate asthma or COPD symptoms. Some pharmacodynamic drug interactions to be aware of. I've mentioned anticholinergics, which um, are thought to reduce the efficacy of a cholinesterase inhibitor. So if your goal is to enhance or cholinergic neurotransmission, then it seems to me that the last thing you want to do is give a drug that's going to block uh, acetylcholine and keep it from working, uh, because that will reduce, assumedly, the efficacy of these drugs. And I'm mentioning that because they are very commonly used, which I'll talk about uh, a little bit later. With antipsychotics, um, giving these concurrently, at least theoretically, may increase the risk of extrapyramidal side effects, and I believe there are at least um, some case reports on this, although it may not be something to quote me on. Um, if you think about it, we treat extrapyramidal side effects frequently with anticholinergic drugs, things like benztropine. Um, so if you do the opposite thing, once again, then it seems to me that that could increase the risk of extrapyramidal side effects with antipsychotics. With calcium channel blockers and digoxin, there may be an increased risk of heart block uh, when you give a cholinesterase inhibitor concurrently. And with NSAIDs, there is a possible increase in ulcers because of increased gastric acid. When you increase that GI motility with a cholinesterase inhibitor, it also um, increases acid production, which may increase the risk of uh, GI bleeds and, and things like this. 
there have also been potential interactions with um, uh, skeletal um, muscular blockers, musculoskeletal blockers, um, excuse me, things used in anesthesia um, with these drugs. But I, I'd actually saw a recent study that um, suggested that the drugs are safe uh, to be given with these neuromuscular blockers. Um, basically a retrospective study looking at outcomes in people who had emergent hip surgery and so they weren't able to discontinue the drug versus people who had um, elective surgery where they were able to discontinue the drug and they didn't see any real problems with people taking this drug uh, with anesthesia so it may be that we don't actually have to discontinue clonistrase inhibitors uh, prior to surgery so denepazil is the most commonly used uh, cholinesterase inhibitor of the bunch. Um, the dosing is fairly easy. It's 5 milligrams a day for a month, and then if it's tolerated, then you can increase to 10 milligrams a day um, after one month. It also comes in an oral disintegrating tablet, and I have seen reports that denepazil is now approved as a generic, although in looking online and trying to find generic denepazil, uh, I was not able to do so, so I'm not sure if the actual um, generic drug is out or available yet, but it should be coming soon, um, which really adds to the potential benefit of this drug. And the oral disintegrating tablet for people that can't swallow meds well or don't take meds well um, is also going to be available generically, so something to think about. Um, the most common adverse effects are things that I've already really talked about, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, insomnia was also an issue. As far as drug interactions, thinking about the way that this is metabolized, um, it has, it's a minor substrate of cytochrome P450, 2D6, and 3A4. So if other drugs are inhibiting um, these enzymes, then it's possible that you'll see some increase in the nepazole effect, which could lead to some adverse effects. But it being a minor substrate, those drug interactions are not likely to be really strongly clinically significant. Um, the half-life of this drug is long. It's dosed once a day. And that can really be a benefit um, for some people. For example, if they don't, don't take meds well and they, don't, they may miss a day or two here and there of their medications. Um, then this long half-life is going to help prevent the need to retitrate um, the drug after discontinuation, which in, in the case with some of the other clonesterase inhibitors, if a person doesn't take them for a few days, then you really have to retitrate to keep from having severe gastrointestinal or other types of adverse effects when you reinitiate the drug. If somebody's constipated, for example, and you reinitiate a, a drug at a full dose when the person's not used to it, that may increase their GI motility, end up getting some sort of ileus or other problem. Um, so you have to be careful with reinitiation of some of them uh, after they're discontinued. This, you have a little bit longer window. Rivastigmine or Exelon um, requires two to three daily doses uh, with food. The titration is somewhat complicated. Um, if you discontinue it, uh, then it has to be retitrated. But this is also available as a patch. So for some patients that aren't going to take oral medications well, the patch may be uh, a reasonable option. The adverse effects are similar again to um, the other ones that I've talked about already. And if you rapidly titrate this or 
if somebody discontinues and you start at too high of a dose, you're going to get more adverse effects. Galantamine or Razadine, I did run across a generic of this online. Um, so it, it may be becoming available in that form. Um, the dosing is twice a day with food, but there's also an ER form. Um, the titration is again a little bit more complicated than with denepazil, for example. And if it's discontinued for a few days, then it needs to be retitrated, um, adding some complications to its use. Um, the adverse effects again are, are basically the same, um, although there may be some mild differences in the adverse effects that have been seen in the trials. And same thing with the efficacy of these drugs. Overall, they're pretty similar to each other. Um, it, as far as drug interactions, uh, it also is a minor cytochrome for P450, 2D6, and 3A4 substrate. Um, but I'm not, I don't think that you're going to see a lot of clinically significant drug interactions due to that, um, since that it is only a minor substrate of those and is um, also metabolized in different ways. Tacrin, I don't want to spend much time on it. It was the first cholinesterase inhibitor available, but it's really not used much today due to the liver problems that can develop. So memantine or nemenda, uh, the NMDA uh, glutamate antagonist, um, is the, really the drug that's different compared to the rest of them, these the other things that are cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, it's indicated for moderate to severe dementia. It's not really shown a lot of success for, for early Alzheimer's disease. Um, the, it has shown benefit in moderate to severe vascular dementia and has been studied a little bit in other types of dementia with results that are, are, are somewhat positive. So um, while I'm not going to necessarily recommend using it across the board, I think it's worth looking into and considering it for other types of dementia as well. The initial dosing is 5 milligrams once a day, and then you can increase the dose by 5 milligrams at weekly intervals um, up to eventually giving 20 milligrams a day. Um, the, the recommended dosing is to give it twice a day once you get past this 5 milligram level. There has been some research suggesting that giving even 20 milligrams once a day is tolerable and effective. So. I think giving it once a day is a reasonable thing to do. Uh, if somebody has a moderate to severe renal impairment, cutting the dose in about in half um, is, is probably a good thing to do. So keeping that max dose more around 10 milligrams a day if their kidney function is not good. And adverse effects tend to be less common than with cholinesterase inhibitors, so you don't see like the same predictable um, GI stimulation, diarrhea, those types of things. But there are uh, a number of side effects, um, sometimes CNS, although there is evidence uh, that points to the possibility that memantine may reduce agitation in moderate to severe dementia or, or reduce possibly some of those behavioral symptoms. Uh, there have been cases where it seems to have induced some confusion as well, so it's something to be aware of if you start giving this drug and somebody gets confused, it may be this drug causing the problem. But overall, um, it seems to be a decent drug for moderate to severe dementia. The half-life is fairly long, um, and it, the elimination is actually decreased if there is increased urine pH. 
So there are some drug interactions with uh, carbonic and hydrase inhibitors, um, things such as topiramate or topamax, uh, typically given for seizures, or um, some of the diuretic types of drugs, acetazolamide, uh, which is used for acute mountain sickness, that kind of thing. Probably not an issue um, when you're in somebody you're giving to memantine necessarily, but uh, something to be aware of. Or something like sodium bicarbonate, um, because it increases urine pH, can in decrease the elimination of memantine. Now, combining memantine with an, a cholinesterase inhibitor will show, has shown, some slight benefit. This is st a statistically significant benefit um, in moderate to severe Alzheimer's when, for example, in this study um, cited here, it was added to denepazil uh, in people who had been receiving a stable dose of denepazil for some time in those people with moderate to severe Alzheimer's. So it was a statistically significant benefit, but whether it was actually a clinically significant benefit is a whole different thing. Um, if you're the type of person who says we just need to do everything we can regardless of cost and or the family has that orientation towards treatment, then I think it's perfectly reasonable to add memantine to, to denepazil. But something to be aware of is that it's just the expectation of this addition should not be, going, be that it's going to have some great benefit. Um, there's really not any cost-effectiveness information about this combination that I'm aware of, and I suspect that it, you know, if, it, if looked at in, from that perspective, it would not necessarily be um, looked at as, as, um, as potentially worth it. Um, to give both drugs at the same time. I'm not going to advocate against it because there are some very slight benefits seen. What I would really like to know is that if you give this drug for three years in combination with golanesterase inhibitor, you know, what kind of benefit would you see then? Since the theory behind this, at least, is that it may reduce some neurotoxicity um, excitotoxic neurotoxicity of glutamate from getting too much of that neurotransmitter. Um, if, if it's going to prevent neurotoxicity, then you may actually see a, a little bit more benefit over a longer period of time. But as far as I know, this has not been tested and is not well known. Again, the question of when to discontinue um, may arise. I, I think there may be uh, you know, there's there's decent evidence for using this in severe dementia, and that even some of the agitation and things may um, may be helped. So I don't necessarily know, you know, when to tell you to discontinue it. There's not been a, any great studies um, on that, although there is a study in progress that I've seen the protocol for that is going to take people that have fairly severe dementia. Uh, I believe the many mental status exam scores are between five and twelve, and look at what happens when you either continue denepazil, uh, use memantine, or use denepazil and memantine together versus using placebos only. And so I think that study, when that comes out, will actually um, help shed some light on this question of when do you discontinue the drugs? Because nobody really knows. And some people are, again, advocates for discontinuing once somebody gets severe. Other people say, you know, maybe there's some continued benefit. I don't claim to be in either camp. I think that it's um, up to the individual and their family, um, individual prescribers and the families or caregivers um, to make those kinds of decisions.
So other therapies that have been studied um, for dementia, vitamin E used to really be, uh, what I understood, a, a recommended treatment at something like a thousand uh, international units twice a day, but um, it's after looking at, at more evidence, it, it's not really um, shown to be beneficial, at least according to those people that do the Cochrane systematic review uh, of this topic. And the, and the one study that did show some benefit, the fall risk was three times greater in the vitamin E group. So why would vitamin E cause falls? I'm not really sure, but this is what was observed in that study. The idea was that this might be neuroprotective to give higher doses of vitamin E. Um, but again, the, the conclusion of the Cochrane review was that it's not beneficial. Um, and there is also some evidence that if you give high doses of vitamin E, then that may slightly increase cardiovascular risks. So there are risks possibly associated with vitamin E use, and at this time it's not something that I would recommend. Um, Selegiline, again, had some initial promise. It's a drug used for um, Parkinson's disease, and uh, it had some initial promise that it might be helpful for Alzheimer's disease, but uh, ultimately after 17 trials, there was no uh, clinically significant benefit found um, by the authors of the Cochrane systematic review on the topic. So, you know, it was hopeful that it could be helpful, but it's really not something I would recommend at this time. The statins, uh, cholesterol-lowering dr lowering drugs, um, have been shown to be possibly preventive in observational studies. So if you just follow people who use statins or not, then uh, there was a thought that uh, they may actually be preventing progression to dementia. But there were two very large randomized clinical trials with thousands of patients that showed no preventive benefit of using a statin. Um, so if given in mild to moderate dementia, in people with uh, not too high, highly elevated uh, LDL levels um, and that were per perceived to have low stroke risk, there was really no benefit in reducing progression of the dementia. I did see a smaller study recently that um, suggested it might be more effective in people with very high LDLs, uh, in people with APO that are APOE4 carriers, which is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and does have some uh, importance in the lipids that a person has in their body, uh, or in earlier dementia. So if somebody's not too severe yet, then there may be a little bit more benefit. But this was a, um, the benefits that were actually seen, even in these subgroups of patients uh, looked at in this study, were extremely small. So it's still not something where we can say, give a statin for people with dementia. What I do think is that for somebody with um, very high lipids, uh, very high LDL, it, it's something reasonable to consider. We know that vascular risk factors um, can uh, seemingly lead to dementia, certainly um, vascular dementia, and there are lots of mixed dementia cases. Vascular risk factors seem to have an important role in Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's a reasonable thing to address blood pressure you know, hypertension and uh, lipid elevation, even if a person has dementia, not necessarily thinking that it's going to really, really prevent them from, from declining, but also thinking about risks of things like strokes. You know, somebody has mild dementia and then they have a stroke, they could have a whole new set of problems that, uh, that come up. So I think it's still 
worthwhile, while maybe not being incredibly aggressive with these um, with cholesterol lowering and blood pressure lowering drugs to to treat um, those conditions. Anti-inflammatory agents, things like NSAIDs, COX-2 inhibitors, or corticosteroids. Um, there, you know, there were some things that, that some observational studies, particularly of NSAIDs, um, that suggested they prevent dementia. But then, when you, they were studied in randomized clinical trials, they really did not show a preventive benefit. Um, so maybe it's something about those people that were using the. Uh, NSAIDs that made them different from the other people and uh, that were studied and not the drug itself that was preventing dementia. Or maybe it's a duration of use thing. It has to happen much earlier in life. It, it's really not clear, but um, to give uh, one of these drugs for preventing dementia is probably not a safe thing to do um, since they do have side effects. And when they've actually been given in dementia, um, there really have not been benefits shown of, of things like NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors. So um, unfortunately, yet another treatment didn't really pan out. Hormonal agents, I think there, you know, there are some questions still um, as to whether some of these might have some benefit in some people. Um, they're still being researched, at least in the case of testosterone and estrogen replacement therapies. Uh, so hypogonadal men, people with low testosterone levels, um, giving some testosterone replacement, uh, particularly at the, if it's an early stage of dementia and early mild cognitive impairment, may actually improve cognition. Um, I, I wouldn't say that that's a... a supported by strong evidence, but there is some preliminary evidence that some people um, may have benefit of getting that treatment. And it could benefit things like mood uh, as well. People with low testosterone tend to have mood problems, and, um, and, and that could be helpful. So DHEA is another hormonal treatment that really has been found not to be beneficial in Alzheimer's disease. Um, estrogen is still a question mark. Uh, the Cochrane Review says there's no proven benefit, but research does continue on this question. And I did see one uh, recent small study where uh, there were benefits on mood and cognition in subjects who did not have an ApoE4 allele. Um, so whether it's time to start genotyping people and giving them estrogen if they don't have an ApoE4 allele, I'm not, I wouldn't say this, uh, we should go that far yet. But but these are questions that are still up in the air about just how hormones uh, may interact with uh, Alzheimer's disease and uh, how they might be important in prevention and treatment. I should say the Women's Health Initiative, the uh, largest randomized clinical trial of estrogen replacement therapy, showed a slight increase in risk of dementia uh, with estrogen treatment. Whether it had something to do with the fact that most of the women in that study were postmenopausal and actually quite a bit beyond uh, menopause, and so they didn't get it at the right time, maybe during the, their menopause, where it could, could have been more helpful then, or, you know, some of those questions um, aren't are really clearly answered, but there, there may be risks, you know, so there are risks to consider with estrogen replacement therapy. As far as supplements go, um, a recent review basically concluded that no supplements have enough evidence to support their use. 
ginkgo biloba um, has long been used as something to possibly enhance uh, cognition. It's an antioxidant. It may have some neurotrophic and, uh, and anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, it seems to uh, thin the blood somewhat. Uh, but really, any benefit uh, in Alzheimer's disease, if there is one, is extremely small and probably less than the drugs that we have available to us. Huperzine A is actually being studied um, by certain pharmaceutical companies to try to find um, drugs that are based on it. I believe it's from a Chinese moss of some kind. Um, and it may have some neuroprotective properties. At, at this time, I wouldn't necessarily say there's enough evidence to go out and start giving everyone Huperzine A. Possibly the most important thing to know about it is that since it's a lot like an, an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, it's probably not a good idea to give it with another cholinesterase inhibitor because the side effects that are going to result are likely to be additive, um, as if giving a, a larger dose of that cholinesterase inhibitor, and that could cause problems for people. Um, curry spice uh, or curcumin, it has a lot of good properties for general health and you know whether or not it might have some uh, preventive activities that could prevent dementia. Um, and I don't think it's clear at this point, but it has been studied. I don't think it's something to start going out and giving to everyone, but it's something that you could look into if you're interested in. Fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids, um, which lower triglycerides and help with endothelial function, uh, help generally with the vasculature. Um, there's a lot of observational stuff that suggests more omega-3 fatty acids is good for preventing dementia. And that makes a lot of sense to me because of the vascular um, risk factors that can lead to dementia and how fish oil can help uh, the vasculature function better. Um, I think it's a good thing in general for people to think about taking because of our Western diets tend to be deficient in omega-3 fatty acids. There has also been some research on its efficacy for mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia, and it did show a little bit of benefit. Given that fish oil is cheap, relatively safe, although it do, does thin the blood a little bit, and uh, so it could be an issue in people at risk of bleeding, um, I think it's something to consider in early dementia um, and, and something that I would be perfectly comfortable recommending. And there have been other supplements studied, but I'm not going to go into them um, because the evidence is, again, insufficient for their use. So to summarize the information on cognitive enhancers, um, none of these drugs are so fabulous that you're going to get some sort of dramatic benefit for most people. I, I, people's expectations should be reasonable. They do have side effects. Uh, the cholinesterase inhibitors can probably be used at most any stage of dementia. Exactly how helpful they're going to be in, in severe dementia is, isn't entirely clear. Um, memantine uh, has some modest benefit in moderate to severe Alzheimer's. Adding it to a cholinesterase inhibitor uh, produces a very small benefit of questionable clinical significance, but many people will at, use these two drugs, types of drug together. Um, again, fish oil, something to think about, um, something that might be reasonable for people with mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's disease. And then I, I think, again, that it's reasonable to um, 
maintain blood pressure and lipid control. Again, not necessarily being incredibly aggressive because there can be side effects of lowering blood pressure or even lowering lipids, but keeping them from getting too out of hand such that something like a stroke uh, might happen. So we've talked about certain, some drugs that may help cognition, um, albeit to a small degree, and now I want to talk for a little bit about medications and cognitive impairment and um, really those things that can cause problems uh, with cognition. So that you can have a number of types of medication-induced cognitive problems. It may be subtle deficits in processing and memory that are very difficult to pick up on. And they may be hard to differentiate from aging. Um, so one way to do this is to think, well, if I added this drug and a person then started complaining that they can't remember things quite as well, maybe if it's non-essential, I can try taking it away for a little while. Um, but a lot of times people are actually on these medications chronically. They may be on them for years prior to um, developing some cognitive problems. So when somebody ages, their ability to tolerate the medication that they were able to tolerate at a younger age may change. And so if this is a medication that, that where there's a substitute that's not likely to cause as much cognitive um, or have the potential to cause as much cognitive um, problems, then it would be worth taking this drug away and maybe trying something else, I, I think, um, if we know this drug can potentially cause um, cognitive deficits. And people really shouldn't be on drugs that they don't need, but you know some of them are symptomatic types of treatments where uh, things like the urinary antispasmodics um, that may improve quality of life to some extent, uh, but do have side effects that we need to be aware of. So we can have subtle deficits, in, uh, as I mentioned, as well as um, thing, as well as delirium, which is a much more dramatic, uh, typically change in a person's. Uh, ability to function. So it's an acute change. It's um, They're confused, disoriented, they can't maintain attention. There's an altered level of consciousness, uh, typically in delirium, where somebody either looks a little bit sedated or they're hyper alert and agitated. Um, memory dysfunction is a core symptom, uh, and there are other symptoms. They can have things like hallucinations, uh, delusions, um, and other signs. So delirium is really a medical emergency because if somebody has this abrupt change in their um, cognition, it's a sign that there's really something going on, be it drug intoxication or withdrawal or an uncontrolled medical disorder that needs to be addressed. Something like a, even a urinary tract infection may cause the problem or pneumonia. Um, so you really have to work somebody up who develops delirium to figure out what exactly is causing the problem. This may present as agitation or psychosis or uh, problematic behaviors. Um, so if somebody has a worsening in their behaviors uh, or in psychotic types of symptoms, then it's worth trying to go and figure out what might be causing this problem, be it a medication or something else, like a medical problem. And delirium is also under-detected. So a lot of people get delirious and they don't get noticed because they're not hyperactive, they're not agitated. And um, it's so I think it's important to screen for delirium in people that are at risk, uh, such as those with dementia. There are tools such as the confusion assessment method uh, by Sharon Inouye. 
um, that you could look into and um, potentially use in your practice. So if somebody does present with cognitive impairment or some kind of su sudden change in mental status, um, then I think it's important to suspect delirium or suspect other causes, medical problems, and drugs prior to just concluding that a person has dementia. So if a person comes in, they're showing some cognitive problems, you don't just automatically think, well, they're developing dementia, they're old, this is, um, you know, we'll just start a cholinesterase inhibitor or something for them. Um, it's important to rule out a lot of other potential causes, eliminate those other potential causes, and then reassess them. So those other causes include drugs, at least if you can get rid of a drug that is known to cause problems, or, you know, is suspicious at least, um, based on past reports or some sort of temporal relationship where they started the drug and then they started having problems, then it should be gotten rid of. And so regardless of whether you decide somebody has dementia or not, um, if you're a diagnostician, then I think it's important to conduct what I've heard called pharmacologic debridement. And that is getting rid of the junk in their medication regimen that you're maybe not sure why it's there, uh, it's maybe non-essential, you know, they can get by without it. Um, get rid of that and see if that helps. Because, and the reason I stress this so much is because there's a lot of evidence that this really isn't done to the degree that it needs to be. People end up staying on drugs that can possibly be hurting their cognition, getting new drugs added that could be hurting their cognition, um, even after being diagnosed with dementia and given a cholinesterase inhibitor. So that initial diagnosis is a really great time to do a thorough medication review figure out if there's some problem that may be related to a medication. And whether or not you decide, yes, they have dementia or no, they don't, then taking away those medications that don't need to be there that could cause problems. So mechanisms of drug-induced cognitive impairment include anticholinergic, um, anti-noradrenergic, or blocking uh, norepinephrine, which, such as certain uh, blood pressure medications, Antihistamines can cause cognitive impairment. Uh, GABA agonists or enhancers. GABA is a uh, neurotransmitter that slows down the brain. These things uh, might be used for seizures or benzodiazepines are um, classic examples of drugs that enhance GABA neurotransmission and can cause cognitive deficits. Opioid receptor agonists. Um, there is some evidence that people may actually um, improve in their cognition if they have untreated pain and then you treat their pain. Because when somebody in pain is, is not going to be thinking clearly, they're not going to be uh, doing well. And so if you treat that adequately, then they may actually improve from that standpoint. A person who is not tolerant to an opioid, though, who gets initial treatment, is likely to have some side effects, they may get sedated, they may have some confusion. So something to be aware of in that um, if a person has not been on the drug long enough to become tolerant of it. There may be some drugs that can cause neurotoxicity, although I think the jury is still out on chemotherapy as to whether that causes uh, neurotoxicity. A lot of people do complain of cognitive problems after having had chemotherapy. Now, this is a very stressful thing, um, so there, some of that might be contributing. 
Um, but it's possible also that um, chemotherapy may cause some neurotoxicity. Again, I think that's um, still investigational at this point, as far as I know. Corticosteroids are known to impact the hippocampus, which is a sensitive area of the brain, as far as these neurons being sensitive um, to toxins. And if you give corticosteroids for a long period of time, then um, it can really damage this uh, hippocampus. I was actually just looking at a study uh, that seemed to show some promise for memantine as far as preventing uh, corticosteroid-induced memory problems. But if you think about it, this is they're really mimicking stress. We know stress can damage the hippocampus and quite possibly related to corticosteroid use. And, and animal models really seem to, to show that um, they can cause that kind of a problem. So then there are other drugs that I know at least I can't explain to you why they cause confusion, delirium, um, why they would cause cognitive deficits. And it may be that just having an imbalance of neurotransmitters, something that's interfering with um, the normal way that the brain works is enough to lead to some cognitive problems. So there are many medications that have been implicated in delirium. Anticholinergics I've mentioned a number of times, uh, opiates, sedative hypnotics, anesthesia. Um, dopamine agonists are given for Parkinson's disease, among other things, and uh, something to be aware of if, if somebody with Parkinson's disease, disease starts having hallucinations, um, psychotic symptoms, then rather than adding an antipsychotic to treat that, which is going to worsen their movement problems, I think the best choice is to start by reducing that dopamine agonist and see if they uh, start getting better uh, from the standpoint of their psychiatric symptoms. Anticonvulsants, uh, as I mentioned, some interact with GABA. Any of them, if a person gets too much on board, can pretty well cause some sort of intoxication. Um, some pathomimetics, so, uh, dopamine agonist types of drugs, so the only more like stimulants, um, may lead to delirium um, from having too much dopamine around. Steroids, substances of abuse. Uh, some other drugs that you don't maybe classically think about as um, being related to cognition, but things like immunosuppressants or antibiotics. Uh, so a doctor was telling me that um, he's seeing a lot of patients coming out of the nursing home or come out of the nursing home to the emergency room for pneumonia, getting prescribed 750 milligrams of levofloxacin or levoquin, um, which is a, a really a full dose, and then coming back to the nursing home and having a lot of behavioral uh, psychiatric types of symptoms. And so he gets rid of the levoquin, and these, these things um, tend to go away. So uh, that is a drug that would be where you would want to re reduce the dose for renal problems. I'm not sure that that's being done in those uh, cases of community-acquired community pneumonia. Um, but quinolones have been implicated in, in confusion and behavioral problems, uh, etc. NSAIDs have caused delirium, uh, other drugs, antihypertensives, especially things like clonidine, um, may lead to some confusion, some even more subtle cognitive deficits. Uh, most psychiatric drugs have some potential to cause some confusion, or at least many of them do. Other drugs, I hate to read these lists to you, but I'll try to highlight a few things. Um, we talked about chemotherapy. Statins have actually been implicated in some cases of, um, of confusion. So somebody will get a statin 
and they'll start having some cognitive problems, then they'll take it away, and they'll improve, and then we'll give it again, and have more cognitive problems. It, while it's not a common side effect of these drugs, it is something to be aware of. The H2 antagonists, such as uh, cimetidine, ranitidine, famotidine, uh, also nizatidine, um, have all been implicated in cases of delirium, even though cimetidine and ranitidine have the best evidence of having anticholinergic effects, it's possible that the histaminergic effects um, may also be uh, contributing in these cases because, again, they've all had at least case reports that suggest that they were causing the problems, especially in people if they're uh, not being renally dosed, so they're getting too high blood levels, and, um, or if they're sensitive to, to the side effects. Uh, metoclopramide is one that I didn't haven't really thought about much, but uh, has been implicated too much acetaminophen or too much of a salicylate. And then in psychiatric medications, the tricyclic antidepressants have anticholinergic effects, um, which can definitely cause um, some cognitive problems. Sedating antidepressants like trazodone or um, mirtazapine, remeron, um, these can at least cause some hangover effects, possibly cause some confusion. Any sedatives, I mentioned benzodiazepines already. Uh, lithium and the anti-epileptics, especially at too high doses. And then antipsychotics. And there are antipsychotics that have anticholinergic effects, which I'll show you some of those later. Um, and those definitely, I think, would, you would think of as possibly causing cognitive deficits. I've also seen some patients that seem just not to tolerate certain antipsychotics, and, the, and they would get confused. Um, I saw a patient get confused where I really couldn't think of another expl explanation other than Risperdal at pretty normal doses. Um, and this was a younger guy, um, had a psychiatric disorder, and, you know, when we took it away and put him on something else, it, it, it all went away, and he went back to normal. So um, this is something to be aware of. Anticholinergics are uh, something that... Um, I'm very interested in, so I may be a little bit biased in, in focusing in on them, but we also know that many people with dementia get these drugs, and that um, the beers list of drugs that are uh, potentially inappropriate for the elderly, for example, um, says that a person with dementia should not get uh, any anticholinergic drugs, at least not with uh, substantial anticholinergic activity. Um, so they're also known to cause cognitive deficits in normal older adults, while people with Alzheimer's disease um, or other types of dementia seem to be much more sensitive to the cognitive side effects and possibly other side effects such as uh, psychiatric symptoms of these medications. Um, so this particular study is just one of many examples of challenge studies that have shown the uh, cognitive deficits from um, anticholinergics, in this case scopolamine, used for motion sickness. They make little patches that people use to try to prevent motion sickness. Um, but it's a very classic anticholinergic drug. And this was given to people with Alzheimer's disease and 10 normal controls. Um, the Alzheimer's group showed much worse cognitive decline at much lower doses uh, compared to the normal controls. So they were much more sensitive to the anticholinergic, which makes sense given that we know that their cholinergic system is damaged. They also showed an increase in psychotic types of symptoms. These BPRS scores are you know, often used for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and they're really more of the psychotic, uh, or acute mania, I should say, uh, really 
um, psychotic types of symptoms. And some of the side effects that were seen in this particular study were euphoria, motor incoordination, hostility. Uh, so this hostility is something to be aware of if somebody starts to develop behavioral problems, as I think I mentioned before, then it may actually be related to the drug. There is some evidence that anticholinergics uh, may increase the risk of psychotic symptoms in people uh, with dementia. So not only do they have these cognitive side effects, but they have possible contribution to the behaviors uh, that are so difficult for certain caregivers. So this is, uh, I call it a short list. I think it's really a list of most of the more common, fairly potent uh, anticholinergic drugs. Not all of them being hugely potent, but um, all of them having pretty significant anticholinergic effects. Uh, antihistamines, over-the-counter antihistamines are um, something to look out for. Uh, they're one of the more common anticholinergics used um, by older adults. Um, the newer ones, things like uh, loratadine or claritin and uh, Zyrtec, those types, really don't seem to have so much as far as anticholinergic effects, but all the older antihistamines do, uh, be it Benadryl or diphenhydramine, that kind of thing. Over-the-counter sleep medications, um, for the most part, also contain uh, anticholinergic drugs, diphenhydramine um, or doxylamine. Uh, so these are, are things that people will think of as, you know, Tylenol PM, it's safe and it's non-addictive and whatever, but it, it, it's really not very safe uh, for older adults. Melatonin, I suppose, would be one of the exceptions if it's something available over-the-counter that people use for sleep that um, doesn't have anticholinergic effects or chamomile or something like that. But for the most part, if it's a drug and it's over-the-counter and it's used for sleep, it's going to be an anticholinergic Bladder antispasmodics I've talked touched on already. Um, there may be some differences in the cognitive effects of bladder antispasmodics, um, be it because they have different uh, ability to cross the blood-brain barrier or because they're more selective for certain um, muscarinic receptors. However, people with dementia tend to have a blood-brain barrier that doesn't function quite as well as well as uh, other acute illness can lead to a really per greater permeability of the blood-brain barrier. So even if we have an expectation that something might not cause as much uh, cognitive problem based on even some pretty good evidence that says some of them are uh, less bad than others uh, or maybe really don't lead to problems in normal older adults, um, you still have to be aware in somebody who already has a, a, some cognitive problems. And so my preference is that people don't give these drugs when somebody starts to develop incontinence dementia, in dementia, that it's addressed through something like pads or diapers. Um, but again, you know, you kind of have to look at the entire clinical picture. Just be very aware if you're going to add one of these of the potential side effects. Tricyclic antidepressants are generally avoided uh, in dementia because of their anticholinergic properties. Um, some of them, nortriptyline, dizipramine, for example, have a little bit less anticholinergic effects uh, compared to something like amitriptyline, um, but they still have uh, they still have effects. So I think they can still impact cognition unless you really think they're necessary for something like neuropathic pain, where there there are other treatment options, um, gabapentin or venlafaxine, for example. But um, in the Unless you really think somebody needs these drugs, I think they are, they are to be avoided um, 
if a person has a cognitive problem. Among GI medications, uh, cimetidine and ranitidine are the H2 blockers that are thought to have anticholinergic effects, although I mentioned that all H2 blockers can uh, cause confusion. GI antispasmodics um, are definitely fairly potent anticholinergics for the most part. Um, medications for motion sickness, for nausea, uh, even eye drops occasionally can can cause some, like atropine eye drops can cause some actual um, systemic types of symptoms or cognitive symptoms. Um, I mentioned anti-epileptics previously. Uh, oxcarbazepine, I should really take that one back. I have looked and have not found good evidence that says that is um, anticholinergic. So, um, well, I think it can likely cause some cognitive problems like most anti-epileptics at too high of doses. I should not have that on a list of anticholinergic drugs. I just sort of assumed that it was similar to carbamazepine, which definitely does have anticholinergic effects, and uh, that may be wrong. COPD medications, these inhaled anticholinergics, it's not necessarily very likely that they're going to have um, CNS side effects, but they definitely have systemic anticholinergic side effects, and um, I wouldn't rule out that it, occasionally in somebody with a blood-brain barrier that wasn't working well that they could cause problems. Um, muscle relaxants, uh, and to finish off the list, certain antipsychotics, clozapine and olanzapine, among the newer drugs, as well as uh, catiapine has an active metabolite that is fairly potently anticholinergic. And that Seroquel is the uh, brand name for catiapine. Um, those tend to be the, the anticholinergic ones among the newer agents, and a, a lot of the older ones, especially low-potency um, antipsychotics, have anticholinergic properties. So something that uh, you can use to help reduce anticholinergic use uh, in older people is this pocket card that we created uh, here at the University of Iowa in, uh, in our CERT, um, as well as HERCI, the Health, Health Effectiveness Research Center, both of which I'm a part. Um, this is, a, it's a pocket card, so you can uh, cut it out and have two sides. I also have some um, hard copies that are available if you want to contact me at uh, ryan-carnahan at uiowa.edu. Um, and, and so this is just a little screener where you can look down a patient's uh, list of medications and try to identify these uh, anticholinergic drugs so that they can uh, possibly be taken away. And this is also available at chainonline.org. This is the National uh, Centers for Education and Research on Therapeutics website. We'll have this on our uh, own Iowa CERT website uh, as soon as we finish updating that. It's in the process of updating. So to summarize on medication-induced cognitive impairment, um, it's, I've heard it been said that all drugs can be psychoactive in the elderly. So that, may, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but many uh, drugs that you might not think of classically as having cognitive effects may lead to problems such as delirium. I think that we need to be proactive in taking away medications that we don't necessarily think somebody needs anymore, at least as best as we can. Um, and think about the risk-benefit of a drug like a bladder antispasmodic uh, prior to using it. Uh, if somebody develops delirium, that is a serious problem that needs to be evaluated, uh, both from the standpoint of medical problem issues or drugs that are contributing, or the interaction of the two.
I mentioned that agitation and psychosis and dementia can be drug-induced, something to look out for, even though we were talking mostly about cognition today, a lot of the same drugs that can cause cognitive problems can also cause, uh, at least appear to be able to cause uh, behavioral, uh, you know, challenging behaviors. And then anticholinergics are frequent offenders. They're among the population-based studies. They're really the things, uh, some of the things that pop out time and time again as being uh, risk factors for either subtle cognitive deficits, mild cognitive impairment, or actually, um, you know, being used in people with dementia. So in summary overall, um, again, these drug therapies we have for cognition and dementia, uh, we're not quite there yet. They all have small benefits. Um, I would really like to see uh, something come out that had a lot more dramatic help, as I'm sure uh, everybody would. Uh, but at this point, it, it's just not happened. Um, choosing these drugs really has to do with the stage of dementia, maybe the type of dementia, cost, and the ease of use, and you know somebody's ability to tolerate side effects is part of what um, keeps them. It was what will end in discontinuation of the drug. It's hard to know when to stop treatment. There are advocates, as I said, for stopping treatment when somebody really gets to that severe stage, but there are also trials that say that they might help a little bit in severe. Uh, dementia. So, you know, that's a, also not something that I can give you a straightforward um, recommendation on. As far as drug-induced cognitive impairment goes, again, anticholinergics are common. Cholinesterase inhibitors may actually trigger the use of anticholinergics. Um, we have that pocket card available on www.chainonline.org. And then also um, lots of other drugs can contribute to cognitive problems. So, you know, there are very few things that you can just look at and say, this definitely isn't a part of the problem. Um, so you have to be very careful about um, sorting through when these cognitive problems started to happen and then possibly thinking about discontinuing certain medications and seeing whether uh, somebody has any improvement. Some of these improvements may take time. Uh, delirium, for example, can last months. It can fluctuate. People can kind of come in and out of this confusion state uh, for a long period of time. So you can't necessarily expect once somebody's been kind of thrown off course that they're going to get right back on course right away. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're suspicious about a drug, if it's not absolutely necessary for the person's health, then uh, think about discontinuing it. So. I hope this has been helpful to you, and uh, thank you for listening. And uh, once again, I'm Ryan Carnahan uh, for the Geriatric Lecture Series 2010, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it.